you have your Bibles with you, and I sure hope you do. If you don't, we have some on the table right up front here. Please open them to uh, the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 4. <clears throat> this is an awesome passage, challenging passage. I've been looking forward to this passage for some time. I mentioned last week as we've been going through this letter, this gospel that Luke wrote to his dear friend Theophilus, that he might have certainty that we were at a big shift in the gospel. Uh, he, he gave us two verses last week that we looked at, verses 14 and 15, and they were actually summarizing a whole year of Jesus' ministry after the temptation in the wilderness and what we get into today. And it was interesting how he did that because he just wanted to summarize it because he wanted to get to this. But we actually looked at what we missed in that one year, what he didn't record last week. So you might want to listen to that. Um, I want to start off by asking this question as it's relative to today, our sermon title for today, if you have your handouts and you're making notes, is welcome home, big time question mark. Jesus goes home to Nazareth for the first time since He's begun His ministry. That's the title for our sermon, but one of the subjects within this sermon, this message that we hear from Jesus is the idea of rejection. Ever been rejected? I mean a rejection where it really hurts. There are so many examples in our world of rejection that people suffer from. I've shared this story before. Um, I'll share it again for those of you who haven't heard it, but uh, in high school, I went to a private boys' Catholic high school in Toronto. Private, it wasn't that a big a deal. But I had two or three really, really good friends, really close buddies. One of them, I won't mention his name, um, we, we were like, really tight. We spent time together a lot. Uh, we actually had our, our first business together. It's called Aladdin Sound Company. We were DJs in Toronto. It was awesome. And uh, we just did everything together. We played Frisbee together. We just, everything was amazing. I moved out here. He was still there. Janice and I are here. I, I'd heard some feedback from some friends because it was before text and emails. You know, uh, yes, I am that old. And, 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 and I'd heard, though, that my buddy I mean, we had all inhaled in high school. You know, we had long hair, I, I confess. Um, but hard drugs, no. But I'd heard my buddy had, had gone further and been hanging around with some friends. And so I had actually spoken to some friends about it, told them that I was concerned about him. I told my sister that I was concerned about him, and she worked at a restaurant um, in Toronto that he would you know, often come to on Friday nights with his buddies. And she actually said, hey, Glenn's worried about you. Well, he was livid. He was really angry with me that I would share with other people that, that I, well, what did he say? I mean, does he think I'm a drug addict or something? I mean, he really got angry with me. He didn't talk to me for seven years. He wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't take my calls. He would actually phone Janice and say, I'm coming out to Vancouver. I'd love to have a coffee with you, but not Glenn. I don't want to talk to Glenn. What do you do with things like that? What, what do you do? What have you done when you've been rejected? Or you felt rejected? Well, I think often most of us say, well, I don't want that to happen again, right? No, who, who wants to subject themselves to a situation where you're going to be rejected over and over again? It's just, it hurts too much. So what do you do to avoid rejection? Well, think about it. What do we do as teenagers to avoid rejection, right? Because you guys all know, you remember those days, I think some of you do, some of you are in those days here, 
But you'll remember that there's something called peer pressure, right? People want to do things to, to show that they're so mature and they're growing up. And, and you're like, well, if I don't go along, peer pressure is huge. The rejection that comes from that is huge. But it doesn't end there, right? We become, quote, adults. We, we move into our 20s and 30s. And, and, and you know, then we, we end up with the hot topic subjects of our day and age. I could mention a few this morning, but we don't want to go into rabbit trails and sidetracks. You know what they are. And so wh- what do you do with your friends who are not believers, or even, even if you're not, and you, your friends are, like, their lives are completely messing up, and, and they're, they're going, well, I think this is right. And you're like, what do, you, what do we do? Well, w- we, we go silent. Why? Fear. Of what? Rejection. It, it never ends. It never ends throughout our lives. So today we're going to learn some very interesting things about rejection. What it is that people ultimately are rejecting. Now, most of you who are rocksters, you know that we'll usually read our passage pray over it, and then we'll unpack it. Today, I really felt, and this week, I felt the Holy Spirit saying, no, this, this story, let's, let's just read it and then walk through the story because it's powerful. It's an incredible story of Jesus going home to his hometown of Nazareth, 1.5 years after he had left and grown up there for 30 years. So here's how the story begins. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So I think this might qualify for those of you who are into hockey and Tim Hortons as hometown hero day, right? I mean, at least to start, this was the idea right? The hometown hero, boy done good, is coming home. It's the only reason why he was given the opportunity to read the scroll. We we have to understand that in this community of about 18 to 20,000 people, which is the same size as Squamish, everybody's there. His mother, his brothers, his sisters. We, We don't believe that his father Joseph is still alive at this time, but everyone else is there. And as it says here, as was his custom, for 30 years he would go to the temple, to the synagogue, pardon me, for worship on the Sabbath every year. Everybody's there. They knew him. I mean, certainly many of them might have heard the rumors about who he might be as he was growing up because there were stories about his mother's birth, you know, how that went down. And so people knew about him, but they also knew about what had been going on in the last year. They knew about this miracle of water into VQA wine. Okay, not VQA, but it was wine, right? He turned water into the best wine at a wedding. That spread fast. Cana, which is just down the road from Nazareth, that spread. But also he'd gone to Capernaum and he'd healed people. He healed a leper. He healed all these different people. He was preaching in their synagogues. Word got back home that he was an amazing preacher. But there was also something else that was special about him. The place was filled to the rafters. We need to see that. It was filled to the rafters. Now, the typical synagogue service 
uh, is interesting. And they, they had a, a very lengthy survey. Most of you will be happy to know today that today's sermon will only be about an hour and a half. It's a joke. Yeah. Their service was quite long. It was like an hour and a half to two hours. It was a beautiful liturgy. I mean, they were great worshipers. They loved their God and they worshiped. Uh, it would usually begin with with singing, but from the Psalms. And they would usually sing Psalm 145 to Psalm 150 almost every week. Then the congregation would, would say and, and repeat together certain benedictions, and would, they would always start with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. And then this was followed by many, many benedictions where the, the rabbi, the leader, or the rulers of the synagogue would say out the benediction, then people would repeat it back. Sometimes up to 18 of them would be read. And then what would happen is one of the officers of the synagogue would go to the holy ark um, and remove one of the Torah scrolls. So the, the Torah, the five books of the Pentateuch, he, he would remove the scrolls. He'd open it to appropriate place, put it on a table, and then one of the other elders, one of the other leaders of the synagogues would come up and open the scrolls and they'd have readings, just readings and readings. But then it came to the, the main part of the service where they would grab the scrolls of the prophets and then one person who had been chosen, a guest reader or preacher, would then come up and take the scroll that he had asked for, would open it, read it, and then preach a sermon from that particular scroll. And so what had happened here is Jesus being the guest speaker, we assume, had said, I would like the scroll from Isaiah. I would like the scroll from Isaiah. And it's given to him, and he gets up, and he picks it up, and he says these words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has appointed, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I wanted to try and practice the reading of that a few times this week in, in some possible way to bring to our minds, which is impossible. But can you just imagine for a second? I mean, think about it. This is Jesus in the flesh reading this text. Just imagine. Now, we're on this side of the cross 2,000 years out. Many of us have placed our faith in Him, and we trust Him as Lord and Savior. And so we're like, oh, I'd love to hear Him, especially over Glenn or any other podcaster. I'd love to hear Jesus, wouldn't you? There were probably many there in that day. Mom, for sure. I, I just can't imagine. Suffice to say this, and not just because he's the Son of God. He, he is the greatest preacher of all time. This sermon that he preaches, by the way, is the outline of every homiletics course in seminaries to, to look at and say, this is it, guys. This is the model. This is the model. This is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. I always refer to Acts 2 and the apostle Peter who proclaims the gospel on that day. That was an amazing sermon with an amazing fruitful result. This is crazy. Amazing. So here they have on this day in their physical presence, Jesus himself preaching the sermon. He reads actually from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 and Isaiah 58 
verse 6. Three verses is what he pulls together to preach his sermon from. I'm going to come back to this a little bit because it's interesting. But then what we read is this in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So I was joking earlier about the purpose of this chair, but that's exactly what he did. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down. Now, now you and I, we read this kind of thing, and, and without fully understanding what's going on, we could be asking ourselves, well, what's with that? <laughs> like, was this like just dramatic effect? I mean, what's he doing? Why would he do that? Why would he sit down? Is he done? The people in the synagogue, however, were not asking that question or those questions. They were asking other questions because they had heard these texts read many times before, and he did something interesting here that would have perked their attention. He did this intentionally to get them to focus on him and to listen to him. And so it's interesting when we read these things. Most of the Jewish faithful, the regular attenders, they'd heard the prophets read all the time. When they saw him sat down, this wasn't surprising to them because that was actually the posture that all preachers in that day preached from. They would read the scroll and then they would literally sit down and they would take a posture of being open to the crowd and they would be listening, but then they would preach from this perspective. I think I'd like to try this in the future. It's much more comfortable. I don't know how you feel about it, but that's how they would preach. So he's taking this posture. They would have seen that and, and been totally good with that, and, and yet they, they, he's got their attention because he's done something. He omitted the last part of one of the verses, and that verse is 61 2b, which says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. And they're like, well, why did you stop there? Why did, you st- like, why did you stop what you did? Why didn't you? That got their attention. Verse 21 then says to us, And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Highlight one word on this text. Look at this text. There's one word that needs to be highlighted here, and it is the word at the very beginning there in yellow, began. See, Luke is doing what he does. I mean, he does this a lot in this gospel. He, he summarizes things. So we could read that, and, and we, would, we, we, could, we could think that Jesus, he's done, right? He, he, I read the scripture, great sermon. I'm done. I'm going to sit down now, and that's it. Actually, the truth is he began his sermon, and he expounded the passage probably for 30 minutes at least, maybe longer, explaining to them how and what it meant. And all that Luke is doing is summarizing for his dear friend Theophilus, for you and I, the main emphasis of his whole sermon. And that is, and if you'd seen the verses earlier, which I had on screen, and I'll bring them back up in a second, he's reading the Scripture essentially saying to them, I'm him. I'm the one that Isaiah is speaking about. I'm the Messiah. Here, right now, right in front of you. I'm the one who's come to do these things. This whole sermon is about salvation and the one who will accomplish it. The one who will accomplish it. 
He's expounded this passage and basically he's saying to them, the Messiah you've been waiting for, the one who has the power of the Holy Spirit upon him to save those who are poor in spirit, held captive to sin, oppressed and downtrodden, I'm that person. I'm the Messiah. Mic drop. That's kind of what happened. It's kind of what happened, as we'll see in a second. But I'll put the verses back on screen just so we can see a little bit more what he says. His exposition of these verses would have been perfect. Of course, he's Jesus. He's a great preacher. But the question will not be, do they understand him? The question was and will always be, do, he, do they believe he's actually talking about them? That's what the question is going to be throughout this whole sermon. And as this sermon goes on, well, we're going to see. Will they believe they're just as poor spiritually, not necessarily economically, as captive to sin, blind to the truth, and oppressed not just by the Gentile pagan Roman Empire, but by their own pride? Will they? Will they, will they believe this sermon is about them? I, I know that many of you come here on a Sunday morning, and you're, you're probably sitting there going, well, I'm really glad, glad Glenn's preaching that sermon and making that point, because somebody over there needs to hear that. Not me. That's kind of what was going on here. So Jesus' message will always be taken one of two ways. It's always taken one of two ways. It's either a bomb, a welcome, welcome relief of good news to those who have been humbled and have received the free gift of grace that Jesus offers. Or, on the other hand, those who reject Jesus and the free gift of salvation he offers, always reject him for the same reason. Pride. I need someone to save me? I'm doing okay, thanks. I think I'm doing well enough. I think I can make it on my own. Those are the only reasons. So the listeners in the synagogue that day would have always heard these words of Elijah. Listen, when they heard these words of Elijah, they were like those people none of you, of course, that come to church sometimes and hear a really good illustration or example and go, yeah, so-and-so needs to hear that, they would have always heard these words from Isaiah and said, yes, those pagan Gentiles. Yeah, that's them. They're the ones that this is being preached to. They were seriously wrong, obviously. <laughs> They would never have believed the Messiah was coming to save them for any of these conditions. But here's the, here's the deal. What a sermon, right? There is preach it, Jesus. It's an awesome sermon. Was there any need to say any more? So how do you think they responded? Well, let's see how they responded. Verse 22 says, and all, look at this, all spoke well of him. And marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But then we see a little hint. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So think about it this way. Jesus is sitting there, having preached the sermon, full of truth and the gospel of grace. And he can see and hear the crowd murmuring. It's a large crowd, like, you know, five, six hundred people probably. It's large, crowd. And he can see and hear what's going on. 
He doesn't need his omniscience, his all-knowing powers to be able to hear from a distance. He's just, he can see it. Trust me, preachers can see it. (laughs) They can see how people are responding. Okay, I'll stop looking. He's watching. He's hearing them murmur and chatter away. Many, it appears, were smiling and saying, th- saying things to each other. Well, listen, you know, like, hey, he's a pretty good speaker. Like, you know, like, you know, I mean, there was a part of that sermon that I really liked. I mean, you know, I thought, I thought you know, at one point there, he was, he was being really gracious and, and quite kind. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, 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 you know, flattery. Mostly, that's it. Flattery. Every preacher, preacher has seen and, and heard this kind of response, but most also know it's just on the surface and things might change next week. Then he hears this. He hears this. Yeah, <clears throat> not bad. It was a pretty good sermon, but especially coming from so-and-so, like his father, who's a carpenter, right? Like, and didn't he work with his dad? Like, like, I don't know about you, but like, where did, where did he get his MDiv, Masters of Divinity? Where, where, what rabbi did he study under? This is now starting to spread. Why might that be? Well, maybe some of them are beginning to think that he, he, he might be talking about us. <laughs> he, he might actually be talking about me or some of us in this room here, and they're not liking that. And so Jesus also senses, he senses from this kind of murmuring and these kind of questioning that now what they're going to do is they're going to say, okay, Jesus, okay, if you want us to trust you and believe that you are the Messiah, you're the guy that Elijah, uh, pardon me, Isaiah was writing about, that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, do some tricks for us. <laughs> do some of those miracles, man, that you've been doing everywhere else. We need to see a miracle. important that we see what Jesus does because, look, he's lived with these people for 30 years. He knows them, but hear me, hear me, please. He loves them. He came and died for them, too. But he is, he's going to preach very boldly, and, and he's going to attack their feigned acceptance of him openly. And here's how he does it. Verses 23 to 24, he says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Cape, Capernaum, pardon me, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So he's basically saying exactly what these hypocritical religious types from Nazareth were thinking. They're thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. If he's a prophet, if he's the Messiah, I'm Isaiah. I mean, come on. You know, who does he think he is? You know, you know, blind, prisoners, oppressed. Who does he think he is speaking to us and me personally that way? Who does he think he is? Well, if he thinks he's that person, then he needs to show us some tricks. He needs to produce some miracles. It's stunning, really. Actually, when you think about it, they'd already, they'd already heard about his miracles. That's the reason why they asked him to preach. Not just because he's hometown kid. His hometown kid doing amazing things. So they asked him to preach, maybe in hope that they would see some of that. But hear me on this. Hear me on this. Evidence 
based on miracles is never going to work. You're going to hear people, oftentimes when you share Jesus, people go, if, listen, if the, the clouds just parted, you know, if I heard a voice, it's not going to work. That's not what convinces people about who Jesus is. Hear this. If it is, he would have done it. But he didn't. He refused to. He refused to. Their difficulty accepting him did not come from a lack of objective evidence. It was solely a result of their pride. We need to see this. We're all this way. We've all been this way. So watch this. Jesus now attacks their spiritual pride straight on. The nice boy turned man that they've known all his life isn't the mealy-mouthed preacher that they'd expected. And to make his point, he's going to tell them two Old Testament stories that are going to really get them angry. It's great preaching, isn't it? Why would you do this? I don't know. Okay, so but here's what he does. He goes on in verse 25 and 26 and says, but in truth, truth, big time important word, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now, now note this. There are many widows in Israel, but Elijah isn't being sent to them. That's a big deal. So he reminds them of a story that they all knew. It was in 1 Kings uh, chapter 17. And here's the bottom line. They all hated this story. Hated this story. It reminds me of, even today, uh, you know, great examples of New Testament passages where preachers, teachers today don't want to go there because <laughs> there are people in the church who are like, don't, don't preach on that subject, please. I don't, I don't want to hear that. So preachers don't, right? Like they just avoid it. Like, you know, like we'll just pick from various passages. One of the reasons why we go through books of the Bible is so we can't avoid it. We have to go through it. We have to hear what God's Word says and try to understand it in the power of the Holy Spirit to understand what He's saying and why that is. So let me just repeat this. They hate this story. The story in a nutshell is this. Elijah is told by God there's going to be a famine. There's going to be a great drought. And, and he's to go to a place near the Jordan to find water. So he goes there, but the water runs out. And then the Lord tells him to go to Zarephath near Sidon, and he's going to meet a woman. She's a widow, and she's, she's gathering sticks when he meets her. He does go there, and there she is. She's gathering sticks, and, and she's like, like, I'm gathering these sticks because what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, make a fire, and I'm going to make some, a meal, some bread and a meal for myself and my son. And then she literally says to, to uh, Elijah, she says, so that we may eat and then die. Important point is, is that she's running out of flour and oil. That's a very important point. And so she, she's in that situation. So Elijah, Elijah then says to her, I'll tell you what, don't be afraid. Why don't you do this? Why don't you go home with the sticks and why don't you first bake a little small cake for me so I can have something to eat, right? And then make something for you and your son, and then he makes this promise to her. He, he prophesies this promise to her. Let me read it for you. It's from 1 Kings 17, 14. It says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. 
and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day of the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So do you know what happened? She asked Elijah for a miracle, right? No. She doesn't ask for a miracle. She does exactly what he asks. Her flour and oil never run out. It's an amazing story. So why did Jesus tell the story, her story to these people? Well, he points his skeptical, prideful listeners, listen to this, to this pagan Gentile woman. One of the reasons why they hate this story is that, well, why is God not feeding our widows? Why is he sending Elijah to go feed their widows? But this also points out something about who they are and their hearts in this actual situation in Nazareth on this day. He's saying this to them. You know what your problem is? Your problem is that you don't believe you're poor. You think that by your good works, you're showing up here every Sabbath. You're tipping, not really tithing. You think you have enough flour and oil stored up for yourselves that you don't need what I can and must do for you. That's your problem. Not sure they got it, but let's put it this way. When they compare this Gentile woman in Elijah's day to them, when he does that, they're not taking this well. He's not finished. (laughs) He has one more example for them. He goes on in verse 27 and says, verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. This is another crazy story that they hated. They hated the story. Naaman was a great Syrian army leader. He, he developed leprosy on his hands. And so his king says, you go to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel will get one of his healers to heal you. And so Naaman's like, oh, okay. So he goes, and, and there's, in, the, in that particular story, if you read it, uh, he's going to go, and, and Elisha is there. And, and he, he comes, and he's, he's like, um, Elisha, would you heal me? And Elisha's like, well... He, he actually doesn't come out to speak to Naaman. He, he sends uh, one of his servants out to them and says, just tell him to do this. Go to the River Jordan, dunk yourself seven times, you're going to be healed. And, and, and this, this Syrian commander, he's like, what's with that? Why wouldn't you just come out? Like, I'm a, I'm a really important person. Why wouldn't you come out and just wave your wand, you know, your God thing, and, and have me healed? Why do I have to go and dunk myself in your filthy Jordan River? We've got really nice rivers back home. Like, why do I need to do that? So he actually walks away, not wanting to be healed. Like, not that that way anyway. His servants convince him to humble himself, to turn around and go back. And he does. And he dunks himself seven times, and he's healed. He's completely healed. Well, Jesus has really done it now. He's used two examples of Gentiles, pagans, to prove to them that they're full of pride. Their response? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. The Greek word there means overflowing anger. No kidding, look at their actions. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. This took place 
in less than an hour and a half. Hometown hero, let's kill him. Serious rejection, wouldn't you say? The story ends in verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Somehow, with his disciples in the crowd, he slipped away. Well, he's God. What a story. Luke interjects. He's the only one who records the story. That's significant. Why? It's the mark of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but it's also the mark of the end, isn't it? He wants his dear friend Theophilus to have certainty. So, Dr. Luke, the theologian and disciple-maker, he places this story at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry so that his dear friend Theophilus and all of us here today would know this, what the gospel actually is, to whom it is offered, and the many receptions and rejections that it receives. We also learn about the one big reason why it's rejected. Pride. Pride. We don't want to be told that we're those kind of people and we need someone else to save us. This story then really, if we think about it, is a foreshadowing of his crucifixion, isn't it? I mean, this is how it ends. The desire to kill Jesus begins right there in his hometown on that day. And and what was Jesus doing that resulted in this? Preaching. The gospel. The good news. I came to save you, and boldly proclaiming the truth. Well, his words are true, aren't they? A prophet is truly without honor in his hometown. Let me ask you this. I know I'm a preacher here, but is that true today? Let me ask another question. How many years do you think is the average tenure of a lead pastor in a church in North America today? 10, 15, 20 years? What do you think? Good guesses. Four. Four years is the average tenure. I've made it to eight and a half. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, researchers have done research on it a lot in the last 10 or 15 years. Used to think that people used to think the common wisdom was, well, what's going on here is you get these young guys, they're at a seminary, they get a job in a small town, small church, and, you know, then they they get a certain amount of success and, and they want to move up the ladder. So they move on, right? Because there's more money, there's more people. You know, that's... Well, they found out that's completely not true. Completely untrue. What they found out, uh, in fact, is there are two reasons, two primary reasons. Number one, people don't like being told what a faithful preacher must tell them. (laughs) They just don't want to be told it. I don't want to preach it half the time. They don't want to be told. Secondly, the second reason is, and this is crazy, but the longer a preacher is with a particular church and the better he knows his flock, well, another saying is very true. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? I mean, the idea is if you've got a pastor's shepherd's heart and you care about people and you get to know them, of course, you, you want to bring application and teaching to, so, the, so that they'll grow, But people are like, he's talking about me. (laughs) The truth is this. It's not just me. It's not just preachers. 
Jesus warned all of his disciples that they would be rejected for his namesake. We sang that beautiful song, the beautiful name. He, he told all of his disciples they would be rejected for his names. I'll put it to you directly. I'm going to put it to you directly in closing today with a couple things. Number one, if you're not feeling rejection from some close friends, from maybe even family members, as a result of, hear me, lovingly pointing out their spiritual poverty, how sin is keeping them in bondage, how blind they are to the actual love of God and the truth of Jesus Christ, and how all these things together are, are just destroying their lives, their marriages, making them depressed and feeling hopeless. If you're not being rejected for sharing the good news that only Jesus can save them and give them true freedom, then, friend, you're not doing what Jesus has called you and I to. He's called us to two basic things. Well, three, it starts off with love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, Right? But the second one is that you're called to is love your neighbor as yourself. We all love ourselves. The point here is to love others. You'll love others by telling them the truth, sharing the truth of the gospel with them. It's the only thing that'll heal them and save them. And then the second is go and make disciples who make disciples. Share Jesus. Why wouldn't you and I do that on a daily basis? Fear? Rejection? Probably. Finally, friends, let me ask you this. Two questions. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ convicted you personally of your spiritual poverty, of your bondage to sin, of your blindness to the truth of who God is and how much He loves you, forgives you, and desires that you be totally free? If your answer to that is yes, then boldly go lovingly go and share Jesus Christ with your friends and neighbors and your family. Secondly, if you're hearing this good news for the first time today or afresh, then do what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do. Repent. Confess. Receive it. It's okay. It's good news. Receive it. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And listen, be set free. The word that he used in, the, in that, that passage from Isaiah that he quoted that I love the most is liberty. He wants to set you free. Listen, the antidote, the antidote to the fear of rejection in this world today is the acceptance of your Heavenly Father. The constant acceptance and approval of your Heavenly Father, it is available to you. Will you reach out and hold on to it and receive it? It's available to you today. Pray with me, would you?